0: This is Giant. I got your visual. Give them Mike, I'm standing by you. Roger. I'll be there in a the couple of mics. In the meantime, give them help.
1: You are listening to Episode 4 of the Men Among Men podcast, hosted exclusively by Fire Force Ventures and Commando Blog. I'm Hank, joined by Bindu. Hey!
0: Yeah. Freddy was gone. He had predicted truly. A big shell had landed beside him, killing him and burying him. Charlie had fallen in the first rush, riddled with bullets. Joe, the ex-policeman, had fought through to the objective and had been killed by a sniper on the flank. One shell had wiped out Stevenson, Therault, and Roy as they grouped by a captured gun. Macmillan had been shot in the stomach and had died after waiting hours in a trench. Billy, the complainer, had fallen as he charged a machine gun, keeping on until he was almost within reach of the gunners. Little Gilroy had been killed, and Westcott, and Smalley had been wounded. Huey, and the sergeant he had defied, had been wounded at the same time. They had been taken away together. Big Herman was missing. They located his body a month later. That morning he had shaken hands with Freddy, said goodbye to him, and then he had got going, had run amuck. He was found almost at the bottom of the ridge, near a battery position, with eight
1: dead Germans about him, four of them killed by bayonet. That was an excerpt from And We Go On, published in 1930 by Will R. Byrd. It's a memoir of the Great War from the perspective of a soldier in the 42nd Battalion Royal Highlanders of Canada, Canadian Expeditionary Force. In many ways, this book is kind of a lost classic. It's a very, very good memoir of the Great War, and I guess... As, especially for us as big nerds and, you know, deep enthusiasts of the Great War, this is this is quite a book. It's uh, it's one of our favorites, so we figured we'd cover this one.
0: We both do historical reenactment of Canadian forces in the Great War, if no
1: one yeah. is aware of that fact. Yeah. By the way, guys, Happy New Year, if you're listening to this. This is obviously pre-recorded, but uh, hopefully 2021 is going to turn out to be a better year than... 2020 was, we're <laughs> hoping that we can get back into the reenactment thing. Yeah. And everything else. Yeah. So we, we actually portray a unit. Hank, Hank, myself, Hank, and, and Bindu here portray a unit, the 10th Battalion Canadian Expeditionary Force, the fighting, fighting 10th, 10th Canadians, a very distinguished unit that was there when the Canadian Expeditionary Force fought some of its first engagements at Kitchener's Wood all the way to the last hundred days of the war. And, We have great respect for that history, especially because it was a local regiment raised here in Calgary, and today the battle honors of that regiment are perpetuated by the Canadian or Calgary Highlanders and the Winnipeg Light Infantry in, uh, is it the Winnipeg Light Infantry? I believe it is. Mm -hmm. Winnipeg Rifles? Winnipeg Light Infantry, whatever. Sorry, I forgot the regiment wrong. (laughs) It's, it's portrayed, it's, it's, uh, perpetuated by two different units in the Canadian Army, and... There's a lot of history behind them. There's a lot of history behind the Canadian Expeditionary Force and the First World War. And th- this book is kind of, as far as I understood it, the, the storm of steel of the Allied perspective, I guess. It's yes. a very, it's a very different perspective. So as I mentioned, it was written in 1930. And this is approximately, what is it, like 16 years after? Yes. Not 60, sorry, 22 years after the war. Mm-hmm. So, this book obviously has published in 1930, very, very shortly after the end of the First World War, uh, November 11th, 1918, which was basically the end of all combat operations, um, at the 11th hour. The war was pretty fresh in the guy's mind. He had served in the trenches basically from kind of late 1916, approximately, I think. It's not very, it's not as clear, um, as some of the other the, the other memoirs out there, but, He serves from kind of that period to the end of the, at the end of the Somme campaign to the last hundred days of the war. He's in the trenches more or less for two years. And he gives a lot of perspective of what it was, the conditions were like for the average fighting man on the Allied side and what the motivations were and what, what kind of people were actually in the trenches. In many ways, it's a rejection of perhaps some of the other more mythical nonfiction or fiction stories that we've, that we're aware of. He specifically mentions All Quiet on the Western Front. He wasn't a big fan of um the portrayal of soldiers, which came out around this you know same time. He wasn't a big fan of soldiers being portrayed as like profane and stupid and and uh lions led by donkeys. He says that explicitly in the preface to this book,
0: actually, he says books nowadays are written by and I quote here, putrid with so called realism. And he viewed that showing soldiers as profane and coarse all the time was, and to quote, an insult to those gallant men who lie in French or Belgian graves. Uh, another interesting thing about Willard Bird is he's actually a bit older than many of the men who would have. Yeah, I think fought. he's 23
1: when he first uh, yes. he enlists. Yeah. And I think at the end of the war, he is, I think he's 27 years old when the war's in. Yeah. For him. Which is. Or sorry, he's he's twenty three and not when he enlists when he's when the war breaks out. So he you know he's he's kind of in his late twenties when he's fighting, yeah.
0: which is not a spring chicken for the Western Front. No,
1: especially with all the underage soldiers.
0: Yes, yeah, no, there's a lot of boys who joined up underage. Now there is something that we are gonna have to address in this book, so I think we should just get out of get out of the way immediately. There is a ghost in this book. Well, there's, a, there's not just one, there's... There's a few. There's a lot
1: of spirituality.
0: There's a lot of spirituality, and Will R. Bird views these as very much part of his wartime experience. Now, we're not going to talk a lot about the ghosts in this podcast. It is far beyond <laughs> the scope of this podcast to talk about the supernatural. We understand that in war, people's... Can see things that aren't really there, but we also understand that in war there's a lot of genuinely strange and unexplainable stuff that can happen. Looking at any war memoir, you can find a lot of
1: unusual phenomena. So the 10th Battalion Canadian Expeditionary Force is perpetuated today by two primary reserve units in the Canadian Army: the Calgary Highlanders and the Royal Winnipeg Rifles, which both carry the battle honors that the 10th Battalion won during the First World War, from Kitchener's Wood all the way to the last 100 days of the war.
0: So yes, it is not in the scope of this podcast to talk about the existence or lack thereof of the supernatural. There
1: are plenty of podcasts about the supernatural. Yes,
0: there's some very good ones. Uh, None I'm going to plug because I can't think of any off the top of my head. And I think
1: contextually we have to remember, and I I think this is why this is a, a lost classic, Because contextually, this is a very, very 20th century book. Early 20th century book. Almost Edwardian. There's a lot of spirituality in it. And we live in a very secular world, at least in the West, where it's harder to connect. Even if you are like religious, I think a lot of people that are religious, whatever your your faith group is, it's still kind of hard to connect your, I guess, theological views with physically seeing ghosts. And ghosts telling you what to do. In the middle of a firefight. Saving your life in some cases. And in other cases, getting other people killed. (laughs) So, yeah, the ghosts are very... They're a big part of this book. And he physically observes ghosts. Like, uh, Even though this is history, this is kind of one of those books you just have to read. We don't really want to spoil it. So it's kind of hard to make that connection living in 2020. but Or, well, I guess 2021 now. But... That being said, it is an excellent, excellent read. Yeah. If you can if you can come to understand what the context is. Yeah.
0: And you'll have to make up your own mind on the ghosts, whether they were there or not. Uh, and, and while it is a book that definitely is in touch with spirituality, it also doesn't pull any punches. Willard Bird's book, as we mentioned in that opening excerpt, that's literally just one afternoon of fighting. Where so many men die.
1: That specific afternoon was the Battle of Vimy Ridge on the yes. 9th of uh, April. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, the Canadian myth of the Canadian national identity in the country first showed up because it was the first time the Canadian Corps, uh, all the Canadian divisions fought as one cohesive unit rather than just under British command as a colonial force. So the Canadians fought for the first time as a national force, a national army, so to speak during this engagement, dealing with some pretty well-entrenched Bavarian defenders on Vimy Ridge, and they nailed it. They completely overran those positions at very, very high cost to the Canadians involved in that campaign. Of course, the unit that we reenact, the 10th Battalion, was pretty famous for being involved in that battle as well, so I think you kind of have a family connection as well. Like, There's just Almost every Canadian has some sort of connection to that battle. It's mm-hmm. a, it's a big part of Canada and Canada's identity. For those that aren't tracking, uh, especially those American listeners that probably don't know about Vimy, but like every school kid is taught about Vimy it's and on, Will Our Bird's there.
0: Yeah, it's on the back of our twenty dollar bill for American listeners, which yeah. is one of the few bills that never ever gets changed in any iteration. The five and the ten get swapped. Around quite a bit, but... Maybe one day airfaces faces will be on the 5 and the 10, but <laughs> yeah. not the 20. Yeah, but the 20 always has Vimy Ridge on it, and yep. the Queen. Yep. And yeah, no punches are pulled in this book, guys. It is certainly not as, I guess, Doomer, you would say, as All Quiet on the Western Front, but mm-hmm. there's certainly a lot of sad and depressing moments that really illustrate the horror of yeah. trench warfare on the Western Front. Well, I
1: think that, he, you know, when you go through the entire book, he's... He's a lot more worldly. I don't know if you found that because we've we both read this and yeah. I, I've read this a few times because I like it and I've listened to the audiobook as well. I've gone into this book probably more times than you have been but I find that the soldiers are extremely worldly. They're extremely educated. Like to give context on Will I Bird himself, he's not an educated man. A lot of these writers that, that have really, really good works of non-fiction from the great war based off their memoirs so seven pillars of wisdom storm of steel all quiet in the western front that's more fiction but the writers themselves oftentimes are extremely extremely educated at least they they have some sort of university post-secondary education mm-hmm. which in the early 20th century was worth a lot more than a history or political science education is today as you and I can believe. Yeah, it. No. I think you. <laughs> yeah, I think you know the arts and poli sci and history are kind of a scam now. Yeah, that'd you don't. Be fair. You just don't get the quality because they were memorizing Latin and they knew all the classics and stuff. Like they, it was just next level. The the actual and also when you got into university, you were generally expected to be coming out of it as a member of like. The gentry, the aristocracy, yeah. right? The aristocracy was still a thing. It wasn't these fake oligarchs and Epstein's that we have now larping yeah. as aristocracy and or pretending aristocracy. that okay. sorry, yeah, <laughs> LARPing, yeah, larping as the aristocrats. You had people that were legitimately like we can trace our heritage back to William the Conqueror as knights and nobles. So you're going to carry that on, right? You still had that, and, and at the end of the war, you lose all that. Yeah. Very interestingly, right? Mm-hmm. But Will R. Bird is not a member of the aristocracy. He is not some officer. He is not educated. At the beginning of the book, he's working on a farm because he bummed a ride to Western Canada to work on a farm. He's kind of a roughneck. He plays a lot of hockey. In fact, when he initially tries to enlist in the Canadian Expeditionary Force, he's not allowed in because he, he lost all of his teeth playing hockey. And we I actually looked at his dental records, because they're public Old now. Old Canadian, man. Yeah, he was an all-around all Canadian boy in his early 20s, just playing hockey, and he lost all of his teeth. So in 1914, when he had tried to enlist at the outbreak of war, they denied him because he had lost all of his teeth. Now, when he tried to enlist a year later because of his brother's death, and we'll, we might get into that in a moment here, it's part of the spirituality thing, but he is let in right away. The teeth aren't really a concern anymore mm-hmm. <laughs> because it it is the first world war and a lot of people are dying and getting maimed and they need dudes they need bodies at the front so they take him but it just to give context i guess to to him he's he's a bit of a roughneck he actually drops out of i think junior high he doesn't have a whole lot of education but the way he writes for somebody who is kind of barely literate uh, maybe it's a bit wouldn't of an I over- say he's
0: barely literate cuz there is actually a part of the book where he does read about the history of France, the Hundred Years' War. That's something. That Let's
1: put it this way: He doesn't have a lot of formal education. He's yeah. kind of like a Mark Twain. Figure. He's he's not a uh, what what's the word? He's not a student. He's not a scholar. Exactly. He does meet scholars in the trenches. I, I use that word for a reason because there's guys. There's a there's a guy he calls the student, and there's a guy he calls the professor. Of course, with anybody who's been in a organized military or National Guard or Reserve unit, firefighter, law enforcement. I understand. Nicknames are very common, and there's this is no exception. So he, he like, there's there's water bottle,
0: uh-huh.
1: uh, the professor, the student. Who who else was there? There's uh, Sambro, I think, is another one. There's a lot of there's a lot of nicknames in this. So you can tell that this guy isn't upper class, and he doesn't he doesn't give off that vibe. He's very one of the one of the dudes. Uh-huh. Just because he's referring to everybody by their nickname. And you'll, you'll get that from a lot of enlisted men's memoirs throughout history. But it's interesting, like you said, the fact that he's talking about all the books he's read and all the classics and he knows about all these historical battles when he's touring France and he's fighting in some of the same places that Henry, Henry V, right? Was it, was it Henry V? Yeah, Henry V. Henry V, v fought he, like, knows he's, like, walking through Agincourt. He knows he's walking through certain battlefields that perhaps the French wars of religion had happened on with the Huguenots, right? He's, he's aware. He's very aware of the world that he's in, despite the fact that his only education is playing hockey, basically, yeah. and, and working as a farmhand. He's not hyper educated. Well, hey, maybe they were extremely lo- loquacious uh, hockey players. Maybe, maybe. Maybe they talked about... What, what uh, does the word loquacious mean? I'm sorry, you're using the term. That, is, that is okay. Too? Loquacious
0: just means wordy. It's just a fancy
1: word for wordy. You wow. talk a lot. Yeah. You're a very loquacious guy. I am indeed a loquacious guy. So you can you can just imagine that how hard it would have been, I guess, to access that knowledge. Because today, you can be very loquacious. I just learned a new word. By going on Wikipedia... Or going on YouTube and looking up some history video, and, and just you, you learn so much about the world. You can learn about basically Plato to NATO in a few hours. You can get a rundown, a, a basic, simple English, made for 12 year olds rundown of world history.
0: Well, that's the entire purpose, kind of, of the internet.
1: Exactly. Not necessarily for world history. Exactly. In... Will R. Byrd was living in a world where. I'm not sure where the heck he's... He'd have to go to a library. He'd have to go to a library. He'd have to go talk to people who know this history. He'd have to read lots of books just to get a brief rundown of what happened. He'd have to dig through some tomes, some really, really, like, legitimate bricks worth of paper and tiny, tiny ink and scripts that sometimes don't make sense and, and words that sometimes are antiquated by the time he's reading them. He has to dig into these things to even know that he's in Agincourt right now. The forbidden
0: texts.
1: Yeah. Whereas now we can, you know, tell somebody, hey, we're in Agincourt. And he's like, All right, there's a Shakespeare play about that. I remember learning that in like high school or whatever. This guy doesn't even have high school. He's, he's in a very different world. But, that being said, it just goes to prove the point that he brings across in his forward. these guys are pretty smart. They weren't idiots. They weren't blindly following some simplistic version of nationalism that that sent them to die in this horrible war. They were they were smart dudes and they understood there was a little bit of silliness with the politicians as we do now, and they were there simply to do a job. They were not
0: dumb hicks, they were not country bumpkins. They they knew they knew about the world they lived in and they understood the horror show, frankly, that they were involved
1: in. They certainly did. And with Combat. There is death. There is killing. There's there's that really good excerpt here when he talks about the first engagement, and it's pretty it's pretty gnarly. The first time he actually encounters the Germans, and he's quite eloquent about it, describing you know the the, the act of killing for the first time. Mm-hmm. And again, it's it's all in this context of I'm not here as some fool who's been tricked to kill these people. I'm here as 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 a human being who is pretty. Darn intelligent, who's read a lot of books, who understands that I'm I'm no knight, I'm no chivalric lord of old of of yore. I'm here in the trenches slogging away because I kind of have to be, right?
0: Harry and I went out on out a second day and never had a shot. He was a cool going fellow, and I never seemed hurried or impatient. He told me that he had shot over eighteen Germans and expected to get many more. Then on the third morning. I got my fill of such sport. We were in our usual position, when I saw a German in full pack rise almost waist-high in a place in their trench. I was so amazed that it took me a moment to discover that during the night our guns had blown in the parapet. The German apparently was a new man to that sector, or else had grown careless of danger. He did not hurry, and I tingled all over as I scored my first hit. It was not a great shot, the distance was not 100 yards, and I had crosshair sights, but at last I really... Killed a Hun,
1: and the killing goes on. Yes. Uh, we're not going to totally spoil that s- section, but he kills a lot of Germans that day. Mm-hmm. Because it, what he had actually run into was a field kitchen, and these Germans were not really. Well, let's put it this way: they weren't exactly crack stormtroopers; they were cooks, and they weren't really sure what to do when they came under sniper fire. And the, in this, again, for additional context, he is a sniper in this. In this case, Will Bird does a lot of jobs throughout the war. Mm. Which is kind of interesting because that's not really, at least from my understanding, what soldiers did. We have this picture of just a guy sitting in a hole the entire time, occasionally trying to bum rush the enemy trench on the Western Front, getting slaughtered, <laughs> going back, and this just happening over. Do it again, again next week, yeah, boys. Do it again next week, right? We have that black adder, you know, General General Melchett, how much land do we take? And he's like, you know, 12 inches. <laughs> How much land is this supposed to represent? He's holding up the big map, and yeah, it's like one, oh, to, one, one to one, sir. This is the actual physical land we took. It's twelve. It's like twelve feet. So General Haig
0: has moved his drinks cabinet six inches closer to Berlin.
1: <laughs> yeah. So it's like we have this picture, I guess. Maybe not everybody. We're not super well versed, but generally people know that the Great War was kind of a slog, but there was a lot of mobility. In that maze of no man's land and trenches, there was a lot of mobility, and there was a lot of times where you'd be shifted to different jobs. So in this case, he's a sniper. He spends most of the war in a Mills bomb section. We we will talk about that. But before we get into into those the nitty gritty of, of the jobs and the and the circumstances, he's very mundane. He, or sorry, what's the word for it? I'm looking for. He's very
0: nonchalant.
1: Nonchalant, exactly. He's very nonchalant when he's talking about the act of killing. He's not. My heart ached for the enemy soldier who's like, yeah. you know, he, he's not. He's not reflecting on it in a spiritual sense. It's, it's it's a job for him. There's other things that are very spiritual for him that he encounters. Again, he is seeing ghosts throughout the entire war. Before he even goes to war, he's starting to see ghosts. But the act of killing, the act of fighting, the act of digging trenches, the act of slogging through the mud, the act of, his, and also watching his friends for many years, get killed in horrible ways. He's very, very nonchalant about it. Even during a gas attack, he's very nonchalant. He's just like, it, you know, there's a there's an excerpt where he talks about getting gassed, and he's basically saying, it was a bit of a nuisance. Some of the guys vomited. They put our gas masks on, and we just kept fighting. It's not a big deal. Mm-hmm. He's very nonchalant. You get that on a lot of the nonfiction memoirs of the war. Yeah. You don't get this, oh, how horrible. I had to kill somebody. Okay. It's Yeah, he is not somebody who took great sorrow
0: or great joy, for that matter, in killing. But yes, death was all present on the Western Front. In fact, there's one excerpt, which I'm not going to read, but more as a story, where there's a gentleman standing there and a shell goes off next to him and actually blows the tip of his bayonet off into his heart and he doesn't even bleed. They, they they're trying to find dead. why this guy is dead and they find this tiny, tiny hole in him. Cause the tip of the bayonet has just been blown into
1: his chest. As far as Ace saw it, the guy just randomly dropped dead. Yeah. And he wasn't anywhere near the artillery shell that blew up like around their trench. He, he was kind of far away. But just a little piece of shrapnel had hit the tip of his bayonet on his rifle, and had bounced, basically, into his his armpit and into his heart, and the guy just, like, he dropped dead It looked like he died of a heart attack.
0: A lot of people know, of course, the great battles of the Western Front, the Somme, Verdun, uh, Passchendaele, but we should mention, guys, as well as the great pushes from either side, there was no peace on the Western Front, because even when a giant battle wasn't taking, there was constant artillery duels, sniper fire, trench raids, and this sort of, quote-unquote, low-intensity warfare that was just constant throughout the entire war. Low-intensity
1: being a bit of an understatement. Yeah, very much so. So we can talk about that sniper context for sure. He mentioned his buddy killed 18 Germans. That is very believable because they were dudes with kill counts of over 100. Henry Norwest, uh, Francis Pega... I'm not going to pronounce his name. Pega Bo...
0: Pega or
1: Oh, you guys can look at it. The white... ghost or whatever
0: they called them. Yeah, great uh, Canadian sniper. There was another... Uh, Henry Norwest is the
1: other one. Yes. West. Yeah. He was killed in action, though. Ducky.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: There's tons of Canadian. There's tons of British snipers. There's snipers all over that had tons of crazy kill counts in the Great War. Because of the nature of the conditions and the fact that it was kind of a maze. You had sometimes trenches... I guess if I was to break it down in the most simple way, you have rows of... Trenches facing each other. Right, you have like the Central Powers trenches. So the Austro-Hungarians and the at least on the Western Front, you have the Austro-Hungarians, mostly just the Germans, Mm -hmm. and then you have the French, British, Canadian, and basically the whole British Empire, the French, and the Americans, And and the Belgians.
0: And some the small regiments from elsewhere who are sent to the exactly yeah. Western Front. Like I think there was like one Serbian unit or something like that. There was a
1: Russian unit. Yeah. yeah, there was all kinds of. Mm-hmm. So you have the Allies and then you have the Central Powers. Allies, the Entente, the Entente, the Entente, and they're all allies. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I am using Second World War terminology. So we have the Entente, we have the Central Powers, and they're they're facing each other. They're kind of jagged in terms. So it's not one straight trench. It's a it's a jagged kind of boxy, like a zipper, like a zipper, right? So it like pops, juts out, goes back in, juts out. So you can intersect your arcs of machine gun fire. You had communication trenches, which are trenches that allowed guys to move from the front line Mm -hmm. to lines that are further in the rear. So obviously you wouldn't have your field kitchen up front because if you did, which did happen sometimes just because these trenches were an absolute maze it's very. they all look the same. Everything's been blown up. So everything's brown and dirty and gross. Even with street... Because they had like street signs and stuff. They'd be all blown up. Stuff would happen. Like you said, there's constant low-intensity fighting. So things constantly get broken and need to be repaired. Sometimes things don't get repaired and you get lost. So this German field kitchen that he's sniping in this case. I think he kills eight, eight or nine Germans. And he has to stop because he's almost like vomiting. Because he's killed too many guys in his first firefight. Because these guys aren't even armed; they're just confused cooks running around, and he's just nailing them. And they're not; they don't know how to take cover. They're just trying to hide behind stuff, and he just he schwacks them all. And it's kind of disturbing to him, and it's a, it's kind of a disturbing moment in the book. But it just goes to show, like this unit that thought they were in the rear was actually at the front lines, probably under a hundred meters from the Canadians. They were like right in their faces, and that's how Willard Bird's able to just nail them. It was it was very confusing. It was a complete mess of. Trenches and barbed wire. And we're not talking just the single rolls of Constantino wire that you probably see in movies and stuff. These were these were like mages. They looked like hedgerows. Just of, not only barbed wire, but bodies and bits of horses and tanks and other obstacles, blown up trees, maybe even pieces of buildings. All kinds of stuff that were kind of impenetrable. Unless you found a certain path, and there are all kinds of pathfinders and guides throughout the war. That's another one of Will Arbert's jobs, is he is a guide on several occasions. Just because you show up to a section of the front two weeks after you'd gone on leave, it could look entirely different because of the way that the low-intensity warfare just constantly shifted the environment. Hmm. You have parts of the front that are completely covered in shrubbery and trees, and looks like a battle out of a war from 100 years earlier. You don't have this grim, barren, no man's land. And then, and of course, you do have those areas where it's grim, barren, no man's land. And, and Willard Bird fights in both. There's times where he's like, I jumped in a river and I took cover behind a tree. And then other times he was, he's like, we were in the field and there was nothing there. It was just everything's <laughs> <What> dead. field? <laughs> just yeah, just, he's just in no man's land, right? And, dirt it, and mud. <laughs> and yeah, no man's land had. A lot of different environments. So he, so one of his jobs is as a, as a basically pathfinder. Cause he's pretty good with directions. So he basically guides new units coming in to take up positions on the front. He's a sniper. And for most of the war, though, he is, he is a bomber in a Mills bomb section. As a bomber, he is basically carrying a bucket <laughs> full of grenades, Mills bombs. And by bucket, I mean literally like a canvas bucket. This isn't, this is 19, 19- 17 1918, we're talking about here. So the gear was not super advanced. He literally had a bucket, maybe a sandbag, literally like a sandbag, like the actual physical bag, the Hessian bag, for a sandbag, full of bombs. He'd run out and just start chucking them. Later in the war, and there's some photographic going back to like 1916, they did have grenade vests eventually. But for most of Will our birds accounts? He's talking about using whatever he can find. Water normally they were like water buckets that they would just fill with bombs instead of water, and they'd run out and they just chuck them. Sometimes they didn't even carry rifles.
0: One thing I was actually surprised at looking at both
1: And We Go On and
0: other books on the First World War is how much they used grenades. But yeah. I think a lot of that, to be honest, is the fact that I don't really have any personal military experience.
1: Well, I don't I don't think that's that's it. I think we have a perception. Well, obviously, most of the deaths were artillery, and Willard Bird does talk yeah. about guys getting killed by artillery all the time. All the time. But the real scary thing for him was one, the trench mortars, and you find that in a lot of nonfiction about the Great War on the Western Front. The trench mortars, and the British, I think they used the Stokes mortar. I could be incorrect on that. I'll have to look that up. But they had trench mortars on both sides. The French even had grenade catapults, which basically, <laughs> that's they worked. Yeah, because they scared the crap out of you when oh, you're yeah, on no. the opposite side, and you have things blowing up everywhere. It's not a fun time. It'd be right. terrifying. You have a catapult flinging explosives at you. But the lines are so close, and it was such a confusing mess that generally, you throw a grenade, you're probably going to kill somebody because there's so many men packed into random places, and everything's confusing and intersecting. You can walk, and it, it happens a few times, and, and, and we go on where he walks into Germans. Air yeah. Germans walk into him. There's a German officer that actually walks into him, and literally, I think they're like 10 meters apart, and Willard Bird's like, is this guy for real? Yeah. And he's just kind of lying there in his trench, and he like peeks over the parapet. The guy just keeps walking up to him, thinking that he's like in the German lines, uh. nonchalantly. And then he sees Willard Bird. He slowly puts down his luger. Willard Bird's basically like, "Hey, man!" He's like, "Hey," and the German kind of turns turns around, Luger on the ground. He's like, "Okay, I'm not dealing with this," and he just leaves. And Willard Bird takes his uh, Luger is a little soon, yeah. He yeah. takes his he takes his Luger. Just stuff like that happen all the time.
0: Yeah. No, what I was going at is, and I think this is something sort of that gets influenced by popular culture, like movies and video games. I think when a lot of civilians think of firefights, they think of a lot of shooting, and then. Every so often, occasionally, someone will lob a grenade. But when you read about, in like the First World War, they use grenades all the time. Like grenades,
1: some of them seem to throw grenades more than they actually shoot their rifles. Most of the time when he's fighting, he's throwing a grenade. Now, that's partially because he's actually in the Mills Bomb section. So this is a group of guys, or actually it'd be a full platoon worth of men, that did nothing but throwing grenades. That's all they did. There were Lewis gun sections that were dedicated because t- they ended up taking the Vickers machine guns away from the infantry. You also, of course, had your rifle sections, guys. At least in the Canadian Expeditionary Force, armed early on with the Ross rifle or the short magazine, the Enfield after 1916. So you have also the sniper section, generally armed with the Ross rifles because they were a lot more accurate. By the way, there's a there's kind of a myth that the Ross rifle sucked. It's more I won't get into the nitty gritty of that. I, I can, I could go on for hours about that. But the Ross rifle is a perfectly fine rifle. If the British didn't steal the high quality Canadian ammunition that they came with when they first arrived to England, we would have been fine. They would have never jammed. But unfortunately, they jammed a heck of a lot when they showed up because of the tight tolerances. And if, if not for the bad ammo that the Canadians eventually got issued, they would have been fine.
0: Just a little plug here. There's actually a war game called Ross Rifles, which lets you basically role-play a First World War Canadian soldier, and maybe you and I one day will have to play that, Hank. Perhaps.
1: Perhaps. Mm. Just a little plug there. So, the Ross Rifle is generally what the snipers used. So you have the sniping sections, you have the Mills Bomb sections, Lewis Gun sections, rifle sections. You had Rifle Grenadier sections, so they would have... They almost look like little cups that would go to the end of the short magazine in the Enfield. You put a 303 blank inside, you'd be able to shoot out a bomb grenade from your rifle. So you could basically shoot your grenade a little further. You wouldn't have to just manually check it by hand. You actually have the force of the 303 blank, and you actually did have bicyclist or cyclist attaches. I've seen evidence of of that, some of the photographic evidence. It's actually a really good series. I think it's one of the... Manitoba regiments, the Canadian Expeditionary Force, where they show all the different platoons broken down. And I remember seeing the cyclists, the Lewis Gunners, the Rifle Grenadiers, the Bombers, the Riflemen, and, of course, each of them have their own respective command elements. This is kind of more of a 1917...
0: Did Canadians have flamethrower sections,
1: or no? Not that I'm aware of. Well, oh, the French... Employed them. The okay. Germans definitely employed them, as far as I'm aware.
0: It's not really something you hear generally. The British troops using or or Commonwealth troops. In yeah, I haven't, I haven't I'm sure we much. had them,
1: but yeah, I'm sure they're somewhere. Yeah. I haven't seen a whole lot of personally. I personally have not seen a whole lot of documentary evidence of it, but I'm sure it existed in some, even if it's testing capacity or maybe limited use, maybe certain circumstances. But it was more of a German thing, and more of a German thing later in the war. Because they're kind of tricky to utilize in a trench war. It's very tricky.
0: Yeah, early flamethrowers also had a nasty habit of exploding
1: <laughs> and just sort killing of
0: their, their, uh, their users. Here. Yeah, they were not They were not very... Uh, they're also sort of limited value. They're sort of
1: only good at clearing out pillboxes, and that's what they were created for. So those were, those were some of the roles that at least the Canadian soldiers and certainly with the Empire were very common, especially by 1917. It was a little less standardized until they came up with the... Oh, what's the name of the document? I'll, I'll pull up the name of the document here. In 1917, they did have a document. I'll pull up in a moment. But they would standardized it by 1917. So this was the layout of an infantry or company. And they're, they're these respective platoons that were dedicated to certain tasks and Willard Bird spends most of the war as a bomber. He's only a sniper really for kind of a day and he's, he gets too many kills and he's had enough, which is crazy to think about. And he's very nonchalant about it. He's just like, I felt kind of sick after massacring this field kitchen. So it was, it was was a gnarly war. It was certainly an early early war and it's, it's just interesting how nonchalant he is about it. But cavalry, cavalry you found a, I don't even remember reading this in the book because he he showed me this again, but cavalry, he witnesses the charge of Gordon Flowerdew, which is very interesting.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. That happened as part of the Battle of... I Moreau? Moreau Wood. Moreau I, Wood. Yes, apologies. My French is not very good. Where basically, uh, both the Royal Canadian Dragoons and Lord Strathcona's Horse Regiment were involved. Uh, the Royal Canadian Dragoons charged an uh, entrenched enemy basically among a small wood over open ground. And the Royal Canadian Dragoons got hit pretty bad. They had to dismount and take cover. They were... Enemy machine guns were really taking a heavy toll on them. So uh, Flowerdew, who I believe was a lieutenant.
1: Lieutenant. Lieutenant. is a Canadian. is a Brit. Oh, Imperial soldier. Lieutenant. 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 Lose a a toilet. You know that, right? Mr. What's the word? Wordy? Loquacious. (laughs) Loquacious. Mr. Loquacious. Okay. Uh,
0: Lieutenant Flowerdew, who is a member of... Lord Strathcona's Royal uh, Horse Regiment, led his men in two cavalry charges against the Germans and basically massacred them. It was a very successful...
1: On the Western Front. Yeah. It's... At the end of the war, when the Germans had figured out how to deal with cavalry. Yes,
0: this was in March 1918, the very tail end of March 1918. Mm-hmm. And Flowerdew was actually killed in this charge, but he was one of very few casualties. Um, in total both Lord Strathcona's horse and the Royal Canadian Dragoons lost around 305 men killed wounded and missing and over 800 horses but they inflicted very heavy casualties on the Germans as well i don't have exact stats for that but i think i remember reading that the german casualties were around half they're pretty bad yeah it's just the it was a Canadian victory by yes. all accounts yes absolutely but yeah, cavalry did not do as well in the First World War as it had historically. It was kind of a this war represented, I guess, the death of chivalry and the mounted warrior in many ways. Yeah, he
1: he mentions kind of the 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 death of the nobility of the soldier, and it just the fact that they're they're not fighting in a very noble context. Because he knows a history of chivalry, he knows about he talks a lot about the Hundred Years' War he talks a lot about chivalry and knights and the fact that they're fighting on the same battlefield that these knights in the high medieval period were fighting in and they had these codes of honor and their code of honor is survive <laughs> number 1 <laughs> yeah. and number 2 uh, do your job right that's that's their that's basically their code
0: i should point out also on the western front cavalry was not used very much but it played a much bigger role in the eastern front and in the middle east obviously Definitely. The First World War is not just the Western Front, guys. That's what we'll be concentrating on this episode, but it was a lot larger war. It was truly a world war, and there was a lot less static fighting in many other areas.
1: Certainly was so. Cavalry. Let's let's. I, I want to go back to infantry very quickly here. That that actual manual I was I referenced earlier, the instructions for the training of platoons for offensive actions, nineteen seventeen. I know that sounds super lame, but. That is the Bible, the, the textbook for young officers leading infantry platoons, infantry companies into combat, in at least on the Western Front. It was actually distributed to the American Expeditionary Force, and it's just all those lessons learned on how you actually organize an infantry company going into the Western Front, how you, how you actually organize that platoon at the platoon level and at the company level. And in that platoon level, Willard Bird for most of the time is, is a bummer. But he he sees everything else. He sees the riflemen, the rifle grenadiers, the mortarmen. I forgot the mortarmen. There are mortarmen at the front. There are machine gun battalions I mentioned a little bit earlier. They took away Vickers' machine guns, which are the heavy machine guns from the infantry. They actually gave them the dedicated machine gun units. And, of course, there are bombers and there are snipers. And on the side, you're doing stuff like messenger duties. You're doing stuff like pathfinding Sometimes he might be a Batman to an officer, which is, I know Batman sounds very cool, but in The Great War, Batman was basically a, a paper bitch. Yeah, a, servant, a servant to an officer. You're fetching him tea. <laughs> under fire. <laughs> under <laughs> fire. You're cooking him dinner. That's something they actually had to do. They had they were basically their private cooks. They're doing all the paperwork. Not that the officers had it particularly good at the front. They're still doing with dealing with rats and trench foot lice and artillery and raids and attacks and leading attacks and all that fun stuff and also they have the added responsibility of they have to lead these men who are potentially all going to not just some of you will die it's like by the way guys we might all die in this attack not get wounded die horribly and they'll never find us they find us in a hundred years so you have all those added strains not like it was easy but you did at least have a little servant Person to take care. slight so, comfort before. So that, yeah, sometimes you'd be you'd be a Batman messenger runner type person, or perhaps a pathfinder. The gear itself that the infantrymen used. I mentioned the the canvas buckets for the Mills bomber. Most of the guys also had the pattern 1908 webbing. You did have some of the leather 1914 webbings, but leather in the rain <laughs> doesn't work. It was adopt, it was technically a newer pattern webbing that these guys, so by the way, when I say webbing, I mean the, what, what would be called it, the tactical gear that these guys were wearing. Mm-hmm. The, the cartridge pouches, this, what they're using to carry ammunition, mm-hmm. carry food. They'd have a small pack, to, so they'd carry their supplies, it, basically a small little haversack. They'd have an entrenching tool at the back, which is basically just a shovel, a very, very simple shovel. They'd have the handle and the actual tool head. Mm-hmm. They'd have their bayonet. They'd have their water bottle. Right, the actual terminology was water bottle, not canteen. Yet, we use the modern canteen now for any military water bottle. But back then, they called them water bottles, as they probably should be, just called yeah. water bottles. Because I think you know, canteen means something else. It can mean something else entirely in a military context. It can mean like people who provide snacks and stuff. So there's, they called them water bottles, and your webbing would carry all that. So in 1914, they came up with right at the cusp of the war. They had leather webbing which is all fancy and looked really good actually on the parade square looked better than the previous 1908 pattern webbing which is made of canvas that we're probably more familiar with in a lot of the pictures it's like that yellow yellow khaki canvas belts and stuff that these soldiers are wearing but the 1914 wasn't good a bit about the 08 webbing in it was actually kind of Troopstyle started around 1916 when Mills Equipment Company and, and the British Empire kind of looking for something to replace the 1903, which incidentally was a leather system. Mm-hmm. The 1903 webbing system was actually extremely complex to put on. They ended up keeping the bandolier cartridge. What is it? The bandoliers the, the, for the cavalry. Mm-hmm. And they put extra pouches on the back and they, they, oftentimes put these bandoliers which go over the shoulder on the necks of the horses. So I've seen a lot of pictures of that. Even at, up, up until the Somme, they're still putting bandoliers around the necks of horses just for extra ammunition. And the down, da- the downfall, the downside of this obviously was the webbing was leather and when it rained, it kind of rotted and didn't do very well. So, they moved over to canvas, which is just basically heavily stitched cotton. Tough, tough material. Actually, very a lot easier to contort and put on and adjust yourself than leather. Obviously, wearing... Just think about it, guys. Would you rather have leather on you or cotton? Now, fashion statement, maybe leather, but you probably wear a cotton t-shirt over a leather t-shirt. Yeah. Right? Not that they're wearing t-shirts, but you, you get the idea just... Cotton is just a more flexible material. And there's a reason why leather is more today of a, of a fashion thing. So mm-hmm. in the context of the Great War, the leather webbing just wasn't good. But it's funny that they went right back to leather after this, this pattern that had been in testing for two years and had done very, very well in the, in the testing. It allowed the soldier, basically on both sides, you had five cartridge pouches on both sides, each able to carry up to ten rounds. The soldier would also be carrying, so what, what's that? That's like 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 rounds. You have 100 rounds. You're carrying another cotton bandolier of another 50 rounds. So you have 150 rounds as your fighting order. That's a lot of rounds for a 10 round short magazine Lee Enfield rifle that these guys are using, at least the Canadians are using in 1916. So with this webbing system, they were, they were pretty decked out and good to go. On top of that, you'd have your bucket of bombs. If you were a rifle grenadier or a bomber, you'd have all kinds of trench weapons that were made by pioneer units and engineer units, guys that were generally came from woodworking backgrounds and actually had some manufacturing experience. So you'd you'd make your own weapons in the trenches, clubs, knives, shanks, all kinds of stuff. Anything you can imagine, knuckle dusters, brass knuckles.
0: World War One not only included the machine gun and artillery, it included
1: some basically medieval style hand to hand fighting it as well. Did. It certainly did. So yeah. you have all these interesting weapons. You have some pretty good gear and these guys were fighting machines, right? They're not really it's interesting, he's not really complaining about the gear. Yeah, no, I don't And I, it's not like they're able to be they're not able to like wear their own gear. They're always wearing the same stuff from, from the sounds of it. And they're very, very disciplined on that. Now, the only piece of accoutrement that Will Airbird complains about, cause he is in a Highland unit. He's in the Black Watch, Canadian Black Watch, basically, which has Highland Scottish traditions. So he's wearing a kilt. And what he would often do is, he mentions this, is he actually takes a pair of shorts. And he puts a kilt cover on, which covers your actual kilt, because you don't want the tartan, which is the design, the plaid design of the tartan, to get dirty. You put a cover over your kilt. But under that cover, instead of wearing his actual kilt, as he's supposed to, because it's cold and miserable, and he's probably not wearing underwear. (laughs) (laughs) True Highlander would. He is wearing shorts. And he's wearing his trues, which are basically these pants that had the tartan pattern, but he just cut them down into shorts. And he'd sneak around like that, and he'd actually be able to fight better that way. That was actually not allowed, but he he admits... I mean, this is... He's been out of the army for over a decade, so he can kind yeah. of get away with talking about it, but he he does explicitly say that whenever he was caught, he was always in in some deep doo-doo with the officer or the NCO that had caught him. But he does do that. That's the really the only thing he modifies on his kit, is the fact that he wears shorts. In the trenches, <laughs> which is pretty pretty badass. Soldiers found lots of little
0: hel- life, uh, life hacks, I guess you'd say, to deal with the absolutely hellish conditions they were in. And You know, in the trenches, you are dealing with mud, you are dealing with rats, you were dealing with disease, you were dealing with the constant threat of death and destruction. So, often they would find little ways to sort of elevate boredom or, you know, just, just have a laugh. The famous Tommy Witt uh there's an excerpt here I will read where one soldier used his humor to make the best of a bad situation. Back near the ridge we found the officer, a desperate-looking figure, and then as we went up to the hill, we had to pass a large crater. It was slippery and there were loose wires. Old Bill tripped on one and went head over heels, slithering and clutching at things clear to the bottom. The officer hurried back and stood peering down the gloom. You poor fellow, he called. Did you fall down there? Old Bill removed a lump of mud from one eye, shook old wire from his ears, and looked up. The air was brittle. No, he blared. I was ill when the bleeding all went up! <laughs> so, yeah, there's a lot of things like that. Um, little games and pranks they would play to keep themselves Do they steal a same- machine gun? Yes, they steal a machine gun in one chapter which... <laughs> I can't believe... Sorry, did they steal
1: a German machine gun? No, a British machine gun. Well, I mean, the British did steal their ammunition when they showed up to England, so I don't blame them for... There was a lot of... of, Well, there's a saying, there's only one thief in the army, everybody's just trying to get their shit back. (laughs) Yeah. Right? Yeah. That is a saying, and it definitely applied to the Great War. There was a lot of skillful acquirement, skillful procurement going on.
0: Some of it uh, almost accidental. There's one... Um, expert where they discover basically the ruins of a French cottage and the cellar is basically the only thing left and booze. Yeah, basically an entire wine cellar is uncovered by I think a shell or something,
1: and they <laughs> basically get riotously drunk of this discovered uh, hidden French wine. So an interesting word. They had they still had rum for uh S R D, the rum ration. Uh, small big, perks big, of being at the front. Yeah, big spoonful of rum before an attack, there's I mean, this isn't even anecdotal. This is, like, real. I don't think it's... I think it is... It, it must be in some manual, but gunfire tea. Uh-huh. It's not explicitly mentioned in Ami going, but we can imagine that it was part of the experience before an attack or during a stand-to. Some stressful moment, they would put really, really strong rum inside your tea. Call it gunfire tea. And uh-huh. that tradition still goes on in the Canadian military, the British military. A lot of Commonwealth militaries still have that tradition wake up in the morning, have some gunfire tea. As kind of like a regimental initiation. Especially if the unit had a great war connection. That's that's something they that do to calm the nerves. Which is not really what we do now. There's no there's no rum ration anymore. It's a big spoonful of rum. So like a shot almost. Maybe maybe a three quarters of a shot of rum. It's not bad when there's no other food and, yeah. and, the, and the conditions are, are horrendous. So you do have to keep yourself sane in in this circumstance. As as the title of the book is called, it's And We Go On. And that's just a recurring theme that the guys will be complaining. They'll be, like, oftentimes bitching a lot about how bad not only their situation is, constantly being in these fights, in this low-intensity, quote-unquote low-intensity fighting, these huge offensives that they're a part of, having these officers live in relative comfort compared to them. I, I emphasize relative comfort. Not this lions led by donkeys thing. Like they were, they were still. And the Canadians also had a lot of staff officers get killed, colonels and above. There, there's a moment where the colonel of the regiment is killed. A lot of people probably don't wouldn't picture that as part of the war, but the generals, even if you're a major general or brigadier general, you'd have to go up to the front and inspect to make sure everything's up to snuff. Because if sentries aren't pulling their watches and stuff. The machine gunners don't have enough ammo. Things are things are wrong up there, and you you can observe it as a as a staff officer. You need to make things happen at a higher level, right? And they, these guys understood it. These generals weren't they weren't newbies at this. They had been fighting in Africa. They had been fighting in the Boer War. Some of them had service going back as far back as probably maybe even Anglo Zulu were. These guys had experience. They weren't they weren't newbies. A lot of, they fought in China, mm-hmm. Opium Wars, Boxer Rebellion. I mentioned Boer War, the first and the second Boer War, modest revolt, modest revolt in Sudan, or sorry, was that Sudan or was that that's Sudan, Sudan, that's Sudan and bits of like bit Egypt, of Egypt, Egypt and surrounding of, yeah. countries. Yeah, Red River Rebellion. Now that, that if an officer did serve in the Red River Rebellion, he'd be super old. <laughs> yeah, there was a actual Works R- Drift survivor. Now he wasn't a general, but he was a Works Drift survivor. He was a NCO who served in the Great War. There's tons of these people that had just a lot of military experience that found themselves by the time of the great war, 1914 in either the Canadian, the Australian, the British, any, any Imperial army service. They were very, very experienced by this point. They weren't newbies at this. And they understood that if things are falling apart on the front, it's because they're not making the right decisions. They weren't fools. They did the best with the tools and, <laughs> And the tactics that they had in the face of new technology. Mm-hmm. And that's really the story of the, the Great War. Not so much the lions led by donkeys. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, think that's, that's just a huge... That's like a all-quiet-on-the-western-front myth.
0: Extreme oversimplification. Yeah. We're, we're not going to say that there wasn't a certain element officers. of truth... To, or that there weren't bad officers and there was an element of truth to sort of what the heck are we doing this for... But that's a bit different than the lions led by donkeys. It certainly
1: is. I think this book debunks a lot of great war myths that I had in my mind going into this obsession, I guess, with the great war. It's such an interesting war. You just have the old and the new clashing.
0: Yeah, it's... uh, I mean, as well as having huge cultural and political significance across the entire world, it is a very interesting conflict just from a military perspective because it's in the old... Sort of almost traditions of the Napoleonic Wars in some cases, fighting in lines meets the industrialization of warfare.
1: Yeah, it's a very very interesting war for that reason. Any this book like exemplifies it because he's talking about the knights of old versus them with the lice and bombs, and mud. Yes. Versus knights in shiny armor taking oaths to pretty princesses. So it's the old and the new clashing.
0: One, one thing that a lot of British and Commonwealth soldiers were known for is they made up nicknames for basically everything. The uh, slang sort of was invented in the trenches. For different kinds of shells, they would talk about whiz bangs and minis and woolly bears. A woolly bear was the name for the big clouds of smoke that a bom- uh, shell or a bomb would throw up. When it crashed down to earth, I've heard some people claim that a woolly bear was also a shell that had high explosive and shrapnel in it, but I can't I can't say whether that's true or not. I've heard that, but the general consensus seems to be that it was the smoke that was carried up by the crashing shell. Minis were uh, mine thrower bombs. That's where that term came from. Mine thrower.
1: Yeah, you know a mine a mine thrower. How do you throw a mine? Aren't mines underneath the ground? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. The I actually mine... don't. What is a uh, mine thrower? A mine filler?
0: is a certain kind of mortar that I think the Germans had. That...
1: Okay, okay. Yeah. The, the... So these aren't like landmines that... No, this is... Okay. It's
0: a name for a, a form of mortar.
1: Okay. That yeah, I, the Germans called it mini The uh... Okay, so similar to the Stokes mortar, probably. Yeah, probably not ever. very different.
0: And the... The whiz-bang. The whiz-bang, which was basically used eventually to describe all shells from the zzz, boom, sound that shells made. But originally it was about noise made from shells, specifically by German 77mm field guns. That's how that started.
1: They call each other nicknames too. They definitely do. <laughs> it's just a soldier do. thing, I guess. Yes. Or any, like, group. Mm-hmm. Even, like, in your group of friends, you probably have nicknames. Oh, absolutely. There was... um. A really funny one I heard. Now, it's not in my group of friends, but I just I just like how nicknames develop. Because they have weird ones, like Water Bottle. How do you get a name like Water Bottle? How do you get a name like Professor? When the guy wasn't a professor, like he was just some guy who was kind of a nerd. They called him the professor, but... I know the, a guy who's the, bald
0: whose nickname is Charlie
1: Brown. There was a guy, his name was, I think it was Foreman? Or no, no, what was it? Something, it's like Piltskin, not Foreman. It was like Piltskin, something like that. Piltskin and then it became rumpelstiltskin and then it became foreskin <laughs> so from a, from like something else entirely different it became foreskin so that is from a certain i won't I won't say who it is but it's from a certain military unit yeah. somebody that I run into but th- there's just a lot of nicknames being used they yeah. use it uh, huns and highnees to describe the Germans. Yeah,
0: Huns, highnees, goose steppers is used. Goose
1: steppers, uh, and for them, for their, especially for their fellow Highlanders, who they really are big fans of, because they're big on regimental pride. Is kilties. Kilties, yeah. Now they will. It's interesting. He he. Whenever guys complain, they always say, "Damn the generals." Number one, damn the politicians that sent us here. Damn these conditions. Damn the mud. Uh, damn the officers of this unit, damn the NCOs, and damn the regiment. This regiment is the worst regiment in the entire Canadian Expeditionary Force. We suck. I don't know what the hell we're doing here in this war. But the moment somebody outside their unit says that, there is hell to pay. Yeah. Every time, every time there's, they're just out They're. They're very proud. They can talk shit all day long about their own officers, about their conditions, about their, even their unit. And like this, wearing this kilt is stupid. I wish I could just put on pants like everybody else and have normal putties and be comfortable and warm rather than literally freezing my balls off. Quite literally. <laughs> At the moment someone else says that, no, that, 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 that doesn't fly. What are you saying, mom? Yeah. They're big on their kilties, and whenever they get replacements, they're generally from, I guess, what would what, what the word be? Replacement units. Replacement battalions. Which were units that were formed up in Canada to kind of augment and replace soldiers that had died in these frontline units. So they'd show up to France as a fully formed unit with its own companies and platoons, and they'd be basically broken up and sent off to join a unit that had that's already at the front. Because... Of course, the casualty rate was very high, especially for the Canadians. One in one in ten died. Not wounded, missing, dead. Stone dead. 60,000 men out of a force of 600,000 dead. So it was a very, very high casualty rate. And that's not even factoring the wounded, the crippled, those that get shell-shocked and can't go back to the front, those that desert, those that are executed for desertion. That's not even accounting for that, just straight-up dead 10%. That's yeah. huge. You think about ten percent of your company being killed, and then say twenty percent of it is wounded, and twenty percent's gone insane, and twenty percent rotated back home. One guy's deserted. You don't have a whole lot of dudes left. So they these these entire regiments would be formed in Canada or battalions. They'd show up to fr- England and France, and they'd just be broken up, sent straight to these units that had been decimated. So whenever he'd get replacements from kilty units. Willard Bird would always speak very highly of them, and I think that was the attitude. Because they're, they're fellow, they're fellow kilt bearers. Right? They, were fellow, they weren't Scots, they were Canadians. They're all Canadians. Some of them were of Scottish descent. Yeah, some of them might have all. been, but Willard Bird isn't really Scottish. He's, no. he's just a, he's a proud kiltie. He runs into a, and of course the camaraderie extends on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean. When he arrives in England, one of the first things he sees is another, I think British Black Watch officer is in the Canadian regiment or the Canadian Black Watch, and the guy's like, "You'll do the Kiltie, you'll do the Kilt, proud lad," yeah, something like that. Yeah. So there's a lot of camaraderie with with these Highland units, and that's kind of how they stick together. Right? Even even as a new replacement, especially if you're showing up late 1917, early 1918, as a lot of Kilties. He calls them Kilties, like Scottish soldiers do, or Canadian Highland soldiers, I guess these guys that are showing up to the front lines they're they're not treated like replacements they're not treated disparagingly it's like oh you're a kilty you you're a, you were in a highland unit before you got attached to the black watch awesome right we're going to we're going to take you under our wing there's a lot there's not a lot of discrimination just because they hadn't seen combat at this stage there is a lot of hatred for people that show up and get a medal and then get to go home immediately because that happened quite a bit so these guys that hadn't been worn out by years of war show up, and they're they're all gung ho, and they go out and they kill a bunch of Germans, and they get to get they spend like two weeks at war, and they get to go home because they want a medal. That actually happened, you know, or they get to go to Buckingham Palace and get get the medal award, and they get to hang out in England for a while, and then they might get transferred to another unit, get a desk job because they've already proved themselves. Whereas these guys are slugging away, doing heroic things every day, worthy of gallantry medals and. Well, they're they're kind of broken at this point. They're not going to bum rush into the German trench to try to take thirty prisoners. Mm-hmm.
0: A lot of uh, there's a lot of taking of prisoners in the book by Willard Bird. A lot of Germans get captured by the Canadians. Uh, and indeed, uh, Willard Bird actually spares a German soldier's life at the very end of the war. He discovers one that's sort of hiding in a French village after the Germans are supposed to have pulled out. And there's a bunch of French citizens celebrating outside, and it's not beyond the realm of possibility that if this German soldier had been found, he could have been, well, basically lynched or something, and Will our Byrd sort of lets this uh, man go, sort of sneak away back to the German
1: lines at the end of the war. We find this in a lot of nonfiction from the Great War. There's not a lot of animosity between the soldiers fighting it, because the war itself is not Definitely not as ideological as the Second World War. Not They're anymore. not fighting for, quote-unquote, freedom. Now, you might see that in a little bit of the propaganda that you're fighting against, perhaps, German totalitarianism. Yeah. Or maybe you were fighting for the glory of the former Prussian state and the, the spirit. You find this in, in Storm of Steel, for example, the spirit of 1870, the, the Franco-Prussian mm-hmm. War. You're fighting for something, yes, but... When you got down to it, they weren't thinking about that on the front lines at all. They weren't thinking about rousing speeches. They weren't thinking about the chivalry of the past. They aren't thinking about that they're doing a job. Yeah. And that's why they're so nonchalant about it. You'll find that in a lot of the fic- or nonfiction. rather.
0: There's a lot of propaganda on both sides of the war. The allies, or the Entente, I should say,
1: usually said... we're
0: allies. Yeah, I know, yeah. It's, it's hard just-
1: to... We've been so brainwashed and ingrained with World War Two. Yeah. World War Two was the good war.
0: Yeah, World War Two is everything. All everything. of military history, and history in general, revolves around the Second yeah. World War. But yeah, it's, it's
1: like World War One didn't happen at all. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, but
0: yeah, the Entente always said, we're fighting to keep small nations free, which is funny when you look at places like Ireland and Greece and how <laughs> the Entente treated them. A yeah. L- little bit hypocritical on the British and French. And Yeah, they weren't I mean, really that's... fighting for freedom. I no. Would, I would... And on the other side, like, German conservatives viewed the war as, especially against Russia, as, like, defending the yeah. homeland from the barbaric invader... Interestingly, German liberals viewed it the same way as, like, the czarist system is, like, anti-Semitic and it's backward and we're fighting for a more, our absolute monarchy is a <laughs> yeah. more progressive form of absolute monarchy. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, this, regular soldiers in the trenches did not care about these kind of things for the most part. There isn't a lot of animosity shown. There, there's one part where Will our Bird actually stabs a German soldier by accident and he's trying to get him There's, to surrender and he just the bayonet just goes into the guy and Willard Bird's actually horrified this happened. I did not mean to kill this man. That's not to say that hell. That's not to say that they didn't kill
1: He does kill a lot of Germans.
0: Yeah that's not to say that there wasn't any animosity. In fact Canadian not in this book, but Canadian soldiers kind of had a reputation in the First World War as sort of being gung-ho about killing Germans.
1: Yeah. There's something... You find find that with the... On the other side with the Prussians. In the German army, definitely the Prussians have a reputation as take no prisoners. Yeah, and that
0: was Canadians in the First World War. Uh, We were called, I think, the White Gurkha by some German soldiers. Yeah. Read that somewhere and there certainly are many stories of Canadians basically... Well, no, sir. The, the the Germans were bayoneted when we got there. They didn't throw up arms. And indeed, there is a soldier in, uh, and we go on, who's basically stabbed to death with
1: the bayonet. A sleeping prisoner.
0: Yeah, a sleeping prisoner who's sort of moaning in his sleep. And Will, our bird, and the other men. There's a German prisoner,
1: be. by the way. This is, this is not a like random Canadian. Yeah. This is, he stabs a German prisoner of war yeah. because this guy's been wounded. Yeah. And he's moaning as yeah. he's sleeping, so the guy just shanks yeah. him. Bird
0: doesn't do this, we should clarify that. Yeah, Bird's is... actually asleep, and when they wake up, they find that this German prisoner they have taken, who is like moaning and sleeping, has been shanked to death with a bayonet, and they aren't sure who yeah, did it. Yeah, when the officer
1: comes in and demands to know, like, who who did this? This is yeah. against the Geneva Convention, which, which we're a thing at this point. Mm-hmm. Who did this? Everybody's like, I, I hear nothing. Yeah. And it's just the, it's just, wars. Absolutely hell. There's no there's no way we can, living in 2020, really make any moral judgments on, on what happened Yeah. With, with these guys. Living in the horrible conditions they were in for years, getting very, very short periods. Of leave. I think through the whole war, they get very, very short periods of leave. They, so they're getting very, very short periods of leave. Through the whole war, Will, our bird, is only allowed out, I think, like twice. So when he shows up to France, he gets leave initially, and he visits battlefield sites. He visits, like, certain parts where or certain places in normandy where william the conqueror had some sort of connection and then i think he he gets leave for a second time where he goes back to the uk i think he's only allowed leave twice in the span of two and a half years approximately at least from the front line he's probably allowed leave back at maybe like rear rear echelon areas and r&r places but he's not allowed out of the combat zone so to speak where the shell where he can't hear shelling anymore for more than two different times from my you, I'm a, you might be able to correct me on that but as far as I recall he's only allowed out twice which is kind of crazy to think about when you're in sustained combat for two and a half years you're allowed to go home not not even go home but just be away from hearing artillery every day twice and each time for like about two weeks.
0: Un- unsurprisingly a lot of the hostility that will our bird talks about is towards the commanding officers now as we've said lions led by donkeys is kind of a historical myth There are some brave officers there are some brave officers and will our bird mentions there are many good officers there are many bad officers but i think it is fair to say that many soldiers in the first world war and again just didn't buy the propaganda thought why are we doing this millions of men have died what are we doing this? For For some soldiers, it was easier, like for the Belgians who were fighting for their... Two-thirds of their homeland was occupied by German forces. But for a lot of, especially British and Commonwealth soldiers who are Homes were fairly removed from the battlefield, especially for, like, Canadians and Australians. I mean, or, you
1: can imagine how insane it would have been for somebody like the French colonial troops, the
0: Senegalese, yeah, Senegalese the, Gurkhas, the Gurkhas, the Indians. Yeah, these are mentioned in Will R. Bird's book, too, again, who had... No connection to these fights whatsoever.
1: Does he run into them? He He runs into... He also runs into the Chinese Labor Corps right after Vimy. He
0: runs into Sanghalese troops who've been killed. He mentions them sort of lying there with their fez hats. The red fez. Yep. And there's a joke about Gurkhas. He doesn't mention meeting a Gurkha, but there's a joke about a Gurkha who basically cuts off a German's head and then the German doesn't know it and goes to tip his cap to him and the German's head falls (laughs) off.
1: (laughs) See? So, yeah, there's, it is a world war, and you have yeah. guys from all over the world yeah. on the front lines of.
0: Most of family. whom very much do not want to be there. And again, this just goes control. back to the idea of why a lot of the officer class was so hated. It wasn't because they necessarily didn't care about their men, or that they weren't, you know, in there sharing in the sacrifices to some extent with
1: them. It was
0: more just, why are we doing
1: this? What is the cause of all this? And, it doesn't, I think for Will Arbery, it doesn't really manifest itself until he's literally at the end. And I know this is nonfiction, but we still don't, want, like, you have to read this book, guys. We are jumping all over the place in this book. You mm-hmm. need to read this book. I always say that, but this is one of the ones you absolutely have to read if you can get it. Because it's kind of hard to, this book is harder than you'd think to actually procure now. Because it's kind of a lost classic. It is. It has been, like, republished in recent years, but it's still trickier than uh-huh. definitely won't find it in a normal bookstore, maybe online. But that that being said, these guys are from all over the world. They're they're seeing sustained combat every day. And uh, even when Will R. Bird is allowed to go back to England, they're still getting bombed by Gotha bombers and Zeppelins. <laughs> yeah. There's he, still there's still explosions going off. And yeah. it's just it's just his life for two two and a half years. And that's what all these guys had to experience and they kinda wondered why. Especially at the end of it when the job was over, when they're out of the job and they're demobilized, because Willard Bird does get demobilized at the end of this book. Mm-hmm. We don't want to that's just a it's a very powerful scene. You don't wanna even go into that. But it's a very powerful scene when he's just there like, All oh, my friends are dead. What the hell was this worth? Yeah. Everybody he cared for is is dead. Mm-hmm. Don't get too attached to the characters in this book because they're all they're all dead. Yeah. All dead. Only the author survives. Only the author really much. survives. And it's interesting because it's the It's a Canadian perspective, so for those that aren't aware, there's a really good website, Canadian Great War Project, and also Library and Archives Canada. You can find just about every single soldier he mentions. You can find their attestation paper, which indicates when they joined the Canadian Expeditionary Force, when they served, where they served, what medals they received, what wounds they received down to their dental records. That's how I learned that Willard Bird was missing most of his teeth. You can look this up. by the all public record now because this is over over 100 years ago. The, there, there's a lot of records on this guy. So you can actually, if you're interested in individual people that he talks about, there's a lot of information on him. There's a lot of information on Willard Bird and where he was in France. You can actually find out how much he was paid. Not a whole lot. <laughs> Spoiler alert, not a whole lot for doing all this stuff for two and a half years. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. Sorry if, you know... Break it to you guys. These guys weren't paid a whole lot, but they were paid. You can you can literally see what his payroll was because this is all public information now. You don't get that for the Second World War because a lot of these guys are still alive. Obviously, it's all confidential information. It's related to pensions and stuff. But this is basically a different country, the different Canada where this this war was happening. So you, you can find out a lot about these guys on again Canadian Great War Project and Library and Archives mm-hmm. in Canada. Just look up attestation paper Great War. Almost every single one of these characters you can, not characters, I guess, pe- people, people you can find out about. And I, I gotta, I gotta step back. There's a, there's a point about the regimental pride. I have to, I just have to mention this because it just, and we're really nerding out over this. Like we, we could probably go on for another two hours, but we won't bore you with that because we are nerding out. But there is just, before I let you end, end off here with some of the closing, I guess, how we want to close this off. Mm-hmm. With some of the closing remarks and, and, and just some of the final thoughts. But I, I do have to tell, I just have to mention the, when he's with the, a British Highland unit actually at the front, he's kind of guiding them in. As I mentioned, he's, you can be a pathfinder at times to help guide units that aren't familiar with your sector of the front to the front line so that they can get situated and be able to protect their, basically set up their arcs of fire and make sure the enemy aren't gonna get the jump on you. So he's doing this with a certain British unit, and basically the unit is super gung ho, because of course it's an actual Scottish unit in the British army, and they're like, hey, let's, let's bum rush the Germans. Let's just, let's just, let's just take their positions. They're so damn close to us. I don't want to see Heine over there anymore, and the officer is super gung ho. Unfortunately for Willard Bird, he's on no sleep for the past probably three days at this point he's completely sleep deprived he's had no food he's very tired he's been doing all these night patrols and stuff he just wants to go back and rest behind the lines and he's kind of like well what, what's your plan there sir and that off the, the young officer the scottish is like oh you're a fellow kilty just just come along with us show us where the you know germans are and we'll, we'll kill them all and will our birds in this kind of catatonic state and he's like okay And he he goes out on this attack with them, and he ends up basically coming to consciousness with a German at the end of his bayonet. He stabbed the German to death, and he's like, oh, right, this attack, because he's so (laughs) sleep-deprived. Running on autopilot. He's on autopilot, and and his only recollection literally is, like, it's all a blur until there's a dead German at the end of my bayonet. And he's like, it's not even, like, bloodlust, it's just, at this point, he's just autopilot right a few people talk about you know Berserkers and bloodlust and violence and all this and sometimes it's just for them it was really just a job yeah and you just don't auto- know so you know if you're complaining about your job being on autopilot at the office typing along I'm just on autopilot right now you don't know anything about autopilot. I don't think I know anything about autopilot because that was his autopilot. He's just got a German at the end of his bayonet the German's dead and he's like, oh I did that okay. And the officer is like, "Man, you're a hero. We should like give you the Victoria Cross and stuff." And he's like, "Yeah, okay, whatever. I'm gonna go back to sleep now, sir." And that's basically his whole whole mindset of that part. And interestingly, he does get uh, he gets the military medal, which is a pretty distinguished gallantry award at the end of the war for his efforts leading some really really aggressive patrols. Now he says he doesn't deserve it. He says he does like way more heroic things throughout the course of the war. But at the end of the war, he's recognized for those last 100 days where he's leading these very, very aggressive patrols way, way deep into what was formerly enemy territory, just mopping up the remnants of any German resistance all the way to the Rhine. So he, he does get the military medal at the end of the war. But at the end of the war, he encounters this soldier, uh, a private lender. He calls on this student because the guy is very well-educated. And I think it's, a, it's just a... It's, it's probably one of the mo- most, there, there's a lot of moving moments in the book, it's probably one of the most moving moments in, in the entire memoir.
0: Just to jump back a little bit, as we said, 60,000 Canadians died during the First World War, and that doesn't even count how many shell-shocked, maimed beyond belief, simply lost, you know, wandered off in no man's land... Drowned. Somewhere, you know, never found them. There's interesting, actually, a legend about wild uh, men running around the sort of middle of no man's land. I don't know how much I believe that, but... Anyway, there's a lot of men who certainly just went missing without a trace, whether they're in the mud or whether they went somewhere else, who knows. But yeah, and the First World War was a catastrophe for the world and Western civilization, I think, in particular. You see all after the war... All these small indicators of social health, uh, divorces went up, suicides went up, not surprisingly. Church attendance dropped. There's part of, and we go on where a soldier mentions that while he still believes in God, he no longer has any faith in religious institutions because they, on one hand, the preacher is telling him to, you know, love and forgive people, while on the other he's telling him to obey the generals and kill the Germans. And there's, there's another quote in here where, he says, I think the Germans at the beginning of the war, and again, for our listeners who know quite a bit about the first world war, that's when the, uh, the quote unquote rape of Belgium happened and there were a lot of propaganda, some of, a lot of atrocities committed by the Germans in Belgium, many of which were exaggerated and embellished for propaganda purposes by the Allies as sort of why we need to fight Germany. Not saying the Germans didn't do bad stuff in Belgium, they did, but it was certainly ex, exaggerated and blown out of proportion by Allied propaganda where they said things like there were nuns hanging where there were church bells before. And yeah, so this soldier says I think the Germans at the beginning of the war were devils but the ones we're fighting now are just like us. And I'd like to end off with a moment where the the student, Private Linder is shot. I hurried back to the student. He's plucking feebly at one of his tunic pockets and I unfasten it for him. In it, protected by his paybook, was a photo of a lovely girl. I held it so he could look at it, and saw his lips move in thanks. He gazed at the picture until his eyes dimmed, then smiled as though he thought the face so near his would understand, and the smile stayed when we left him. A lot of young men from all sides of this war had a lot better lives waiting back from home, with love and family and... All kinds of things away from the mud and the death, and a lot of them never got back to that. And I think that's a very sobering thought. Your eyes do get a bit misty when you think of especially the sheer numbers of men who are like the student there.
1: We hope it was all worth it, and we go on. And we go on. And we go on. So, with that said, you're probably listening to this on Fire Force Ventures website. <laughs> I'm to segue. Or Commando Blog's website, because we do have to go on. Yes. We're, we're going on, we're going on out. This might turn into our longest podcast. But anyways, we like military history too. As you can tell, we nerd out a lot over military history, particularly the Great War. Fire Force Ventures, as you know, Mr. Bindu, is a pretty cool website that does a lot of historical posts on social media about the Great War, mm-hmm. oftentimes. And actually has a few products on said web store, and it's going to have more down the road and related to the Great War. I think having those little trinkets sometimes hung up on the wall, just reminds us that it was worth it, that what these guys went through wasn't just a exercise in nationalism and imperialism and all that. Like, that's not why I have my personal collections. Like, behind me I have a personal collection of some original and reproduction pieces and webbing. I'm, I'm surrounded by it. I live I live with it all the time. I'm holding a short magazine Lee Enfield Pattern 1907 Bayonet right now. I've been, <laughs> <laughs> I've been clutching a band at this whole podcast, actually. And it's just a reminder. This is just a reminder of how good we have it right now, despite the situation, despite moving into this kind of crazy 2021 with what last year was. And and we go on. So that's that's kind of why I have these pieces. So if you're interested in having a little piece of history, not just from the Great War, but also from different eras Maybe the Cold War is very impactful to you. Maybe the Second World War is. Maybe the Rhodesian Bush Wars are. Fire Force Ventures is all that cool stuff. Nice to keep it around. Good little pieces. There's a reason why collectors exist. Yeah. And it's it's to, it's to really, in a deep way, connect sentimentally to that history.
0: Whether you believe in ghosts or not. Whether you th- believe in ghosts or not. I think it's fair to say that the sort of past lives no, with is, us.
1: This is what a bayonet sounds like when it comes out of the sheath. Isn't that nice? Yes. I hope that came out okay. Yeah. But yes, as I was
0: saying, I think it's fair to say that the past lives with us and that we need to remember these men, if for no other reason than they gave up everything for what they thought was their duty.
1: Indeed. And if you like military history and you like some of the gear discussions we had, well, there's lots of places where you can read about gear and the gear that's being used today by various militaries or sports shooters or law enforcement groups. Definitely check out Commando Blog. In fact, you might be listening to this on Commando Blog. Commandoblog.com has some excellent articles, videos, podcasts, all related to lifestyle gear and all things firearms. And if you like, if you'd like to have your own little piece of militaria, definitely check out fireforceventures.com. So as we conclude this podcast, this is gonna be a first of a series on the Great War where the next podcasts. We are going to be doing. We're going to be doing a very different take, I would say,
0: extremely different. We've hinted, viewpoint. yeah, we,
1: we've hinted at it. It's an ex, it's it's a very different viewpoint, but at the same time, there are some crazy, crazy similarities, and I think that Will Arbor res- represented one perspective, and the other book that we're going to cover, the other memoir we're going to cover, is going to re- represent another perspective of the Western Front, and they're both equally valid and. I think, need to be treated as such and looked at with a nuanced and objective lens. The book, again, was And We Go On, 1930, publication by Will R. Byrd. You can still find it, I think, on Amazon and some other online book dealers. We'd like to pay a special tribute and thanks to those that did go on. Soldiers of the Great War on both sides. The Entente and Central Powers that died to create this modern world that we have and all the luxuries that we enjoy. Everything from ambulance services to telephones to electricity being widespread to factories to new farming techniques that allowed us, you know, over time to increase the world's population and brought us into this modernity that we know and kind of take advantage of through the blood. And mud and suffering of the Western front, all the, all the lessons they learned, not only in technology, but in leadership, in political leadership and political theory, all the, all the ideas and the free market of ideas that we have. We'd like to pay a special thanks or give a special thanks. Shout out to them, those that are no longer with us. And we go on. And of course, thank you to all of our active duty members in at least good guy militaries. Sorry, China. <laughs> Law enforcement, first responders, dispatchers, EMTs, paramedics, you guys rock as always. We haven't really given a shout out or buyers club as well, but you guys are rock as well and our supporters. If you consider this a good podcast, please consider supporting us on subscribe star and, and tell your friends about it and tell your friends about it. And definitely to all those that fought in the great war, the first world war, a very, very special thanks to them for in their own way. And make, it was worth it, but in their own way, making sure that we have the modern world we have today, for better or worse. Something about chiboulies.
0: Pull up. <laughs> so pull up. pull up and have a Chibouli with us. To the men of the Great War.
1: Cheers.